Well, good morning. Excited to be here with you all this morning. Uh, we will be in Revelation 19 in just a moment. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible, go for that. And if you don't have a Bible and you want to follow along that way, we have Bibles under the seats around you. If you don't own a Bible, um, that's our free gift to you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word, so um, that is a free gift to you if you don't, if you don't have a Bible. Um, as you turn there, just a quick uh, reminder, um, please excuse our mess, <laughs> literally this morning. Uh, that far end of this building is, is a mess. Uh, we're in the middle of remodel. It's an exciting time here at Solid Rock as we're working forward uh, to create more space for God to do more work here and more people to come be a part of what uh, God is doing here. And so if you're a, a gentleman and uh, you've used the restroom or you plan on using the restroom, there are no lights in the bathroom this morning, okay? So, uh, so you may want to have a cell phone with a flashlight. Um, so you can see there's one small window in there, a little bit of light, but just, just rest assured, hopefully by next Sunday we'll have the lights back on in the men's restroom. Ladies, notice, we made sure you had lights, so. All right. So we are in uh, Revelation 19 as we continue this uh, sermon series entitled The Gospel Story. Um, if you're just stepping into our services and haven't been here over the last few weeks, that's fine. Let me just catch you up. Uh, so we started a sermon series walking from Genesis to Revelation, walking through the books of the Bible, the stories of the Bible, looking at how through all these different stories written by all these different authors and all these different time periods actually stitched together to tell one gospel story, the story of God's redemption. We started this series in the book of Genesis looking at creation, how when God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, he declared that it was very good and full of glory. The next week we came back and we looked at the fall, how through Adam and Eve's disobedience to God, through their sin, that everything God created good became distorted, especially our role as image bearers. And this is where sin and death enter into the story. And we came back after that and we looked at how all throughout the Old Testament, there's this lingering promise from God that he will rescue the nations and restore all that was lost through the fall, which led us up to the opening of the New Testament, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this is where we noticed that the author of the story steps into the story. He incarnates and becomes like us to walk among us and dwell among us. And he lives a perfectly righteous life in our presence. And then he goes to the cross willingly to die sacrificially on our behalf. And then he resurrects from the grave to rescue us from sin and death. And after that, we looked at the New Testament, how the New Testament gives this beautiful picture of what God's doing in us, how God is restoring everything in us, and we are every day, glory by glory, struggle by struggle, moment by moment, becoming more and more what we were created to be as image bearers. We looked just a couple weeks ago at, at our part in being image bearers in this restorative process that, that God has called us to seek things that are above and set our minds on things uh, that are above and to get our gaze off of the things in this world. And, and through doing that, through focusing our heart's affection, our mind's attention on Christ, we participate in that amazing supernatural work that he is doing inside of us. And so starting last week, we began looking at this final restoration that is to come. And we'll spend Today and next Sunday, landing the sermon series, looking at the book of Revelation at what is to come. Last week, we looked at the glorification of the saints, where you and I, as broken, fallen, sinful people who have trusted in Christ, um, that there was a day coming where we, together as saints, will step into the fullness of the glory of Christ, no longer 
partially beholding Christ, no longer looking at him as, as in a mirror dimly, but fully and finally, not momentarily, but finally standing into, stepping into the presence of the glory of Christ will be finally transformed to be like him. And so now here we are in the story, there's some things that haven't happened yet. Namely, God's enemies haven't been brought to an end. And today we're going to look at this process of Christ becoming preeminent in the universe and all the enemies of God being brought to nothing. We're going to be in Revelation 19, starting in verse 6. We're going to read through verse 10. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What we're moving into now in the gospel story is this beautiful moment where the bride of Christ, which is us, have been made ready now together in 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 the banquet hall to celebrate the wedding between the bride of Christ and Jesus himself. Such a beautiful imagery here as we look at how this is described. Now, I want to start at the beginning because I love that this is not just visual descriptions. We get an audible description of the saints gathering into the banquet hall for this wedding. How is it described? It's described as many rushing waters and like the sound of thunder. Now, what's unique about both of those examples is that it's not only loud, it's so loud you can feel it. We've talked about it in here before, like standing at Niagara Falls, not just beholding the the amazing power of water just falling hundreds of feet, but the audible expression of just being able to feel the percussion of those thousands and thousands of gallons of water pouring off and crashing down below. That's a description of the saints gathering at the great banquet hall for the marriage between the church, the bride of Christ, and Jesus himself. It's also described and compared to the mighty peals of roaring thunder. As you begin to hear thunder in the distance, it's something that you can not only hear, it's something you can feel. What's beautiful about that is that that is describing... God's people gathering together. This, is not, this doesn't sound like any wedding I've ever been to, right? Where people show up quietly. Most of us leave our kids at home so that we don't get too rowdy and we file into the little sanctuary, the wedding chapel. We take our seats and we shush and quiet. 
This is something far more glorious than that, isn't it? That the saints are showing up and they're not filing into their seats quietly. Their voices are ringing out in worship. What's beautiful about this moment is that we're able to see, catch, catch this beautiful imagery of what we talked about over the last two weeks, that what we were created to do, to worship the one true God, to, com- to commune and dwell in rich community with one another, it's actually being played out here, and I love the way it's described. Now, keep in mind, John, the apostle, is writing this down at the end of the first century. He's seeing something that hasn't happened yet, but is to come. So we see a clear contrast between where John's worship is and the worship of the saints, don't we? The saints are gathering together like the roaring of of thousands of gallons of water, peals of thunder. Again, they're singing, hallelujah, the Lord, our God Almighty reigns. But did you see where John's worship was? This angelic being revealing this to him, and what does he do? He falls down to worship the angel, and the angel said, whoa, 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 hey, John, oh, hold up. I'm just like you here, man. Don't worship me, right? You're an apostle. I'm an angel, but ultimately, we're servants of God. Don't worship me. Worship him. And you can see that contrast, can't you? See, there is coming a day where our worship will be fully restored. We won't be tempted to worship the things here on earth or angelic beings, or our own ambitions. Our worship will be fixed on Christ, no longer on pushing our own agendas, building our own kingdoms, or making a great name for ourselves. This is a beautiful moment of worship unto Christ and him alone. We also see it, just glimpses of it here, and we'll talk about it more next Sunday. We're seeing this beautiful imagery of what it looks like for our community with one another to be completely restored. We use the word community a lot in our culture today, and we oftentimes mean the people who live around us, right? When the Bible talks about community, it's much deeper than that. It includes a kinship, a deep abiding covenant bond with one another, a relationship with no more barriers, no more hesitations, no more safeguards, completely vulnerable. And we see it here as community is gathered together. The nations are gathered together, no longer worried about what's red, yellow, black, and white. The barriers of prejudices are gone. The inability to trust one another is gone. The suspicion of the motives of others is gone. This deep feeling of inadequacy that compels us to project an image that tries to convince people we're better than we are or tries to earn friendships, that's all gone now. Here in this moment, as the bride of Christ gathers together in perfect unity and harmony. I I love this, this phrase, it was granted her. One of my favorite moments in weddings, I get to do a lot of weddings and attend a lot of weddings, and, and my absolute favorite moment in every wedding I've ever been to is the moment when the doors open and the radiant bride enters. Like, it doesn't matter how well I know her or the groom, him. It does something inside of me. It just stirs something in the room when everybody stands to attention, turns to look at who walked in the room, and we all behold the radiant glory of the bride. And, and I love to do this. As soon as I see it and my heart begins to stir, I just I look to see what he's doing. And that moment where this groom who, 
who knows this woman. He's probably seen her best and her worst and knows her flaws. In that moment, he's captivated, right, by her radiant glory, and he begins to, to weep. Such a beautiful moment. This is what's being described to us here about when we enter as the saints into that wedding. Now, did you catch the phrasing, the wording, the description of us? It was granted to her, that's us, to clothe with fine linen, bright and pure. What is, what is John telling us here? What does it mean that it was granted to us to wear these clothes? Here's what it means. You and I didn't earn it. That for even dirty, rotten sinners who are broken like me, this is what I get to look like in eternity. Radiant glory. I didn't feel like that when I rolled out of bed this morning. <laughs> you? Many moments this past week, I felt broken, run down, half-hearted. My worship was still distorted on things here on earth versus things above Yet there's a day coming when our worship will be fully restored and the glory of Christ will just radiate off of who we are and all you'll see is purity. All you'll see is cleanliness. All you'll see is faithfulness when the bride of Christ enters into the room. Now, we're gonna shift to the point where the groom enters the room. And I have to say, I've never been to a wedding quite like this. Verse 11, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Now, just pause. So that moment when the doors open and the bride enters, now what's happening is heaven is opening up and the groom is entering. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. This is a, a groom who's dressed to kill, right? Literally, dressed to bring war. I was joking around this week. Um, in The Passion of the Christ, Jim Caviezel played Jesus. We're gonna have to get somebody else to play Jesus in this movie, right? More like Vin Diesel or somebody bigger than that, right? No longer is this the servant, humble Jesus, willingly, laying his life down to be tortured and mocked, made fun of and spat upon and punched and ultimately killed. No, this Jesus has come back postured to make war. 
What's beautiful is what we're seeing here is this, that as Jesus enters into this wedding celebration, he does so to rescue his bride from his enemies. We're going to talk about that a little bit more today. We think about it. What we're seeing happening and unfolding right here is the unleashing of the righteous anger of God that for thousands upon thousands of years has been building one injustice after another. Billions upon billions of injustices have taken place in the gospel story, and now what we're about to behold is God's wrath being unleashed on all injustices. It's so helpful to look at Romans 9 and the way the Apostle Paul describes this moment. Verses 22 to 24 in Romans 9. Paul says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So let's pause. Paul is saying, here's what's happening in the big timeline of human history. God is enduring with great patience all these injustices towards the objects of his wrath that are prepared for destruction. So what's going on right now today with injustices in the world, God is bearing with great patience. Look at what he says, verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says of Hosea. Now listen, this is a beautiful description of the bride. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in every place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. What a beautiful description from the Apostle Paul and what's happening right now in the world today. Two different things. We have objects of mercy. That's us, right? Objects of mercy. Those who didn't used to be God's people, but God's saying now what? You're my people. People who weren't lovely at all, not fit to be dressed as a bride, and God's saying, you're now my beloved. Those are the objects of God's mercy, and what's happening right now with God's wrath is it's being endured with great patience. We look at the world today at injustices around the globe, we ask the question, why is God allowing so many injustices in the world today and God says to us listen I'm enduring these things with great patience don't think they aren't testing my patience but I'm enduring them with great patience well why would you do that God why don't you just repay evil for evil right now and he says right here because I'm doing this to make known the riches of my glory for the vessels of mercy there's a purpose behind God's enduring with great patience now on a personal level we take a step back and say wait a second what about my part in that what about my injustices I've never strapped a bomb on myself and walked into a crowded gathering of people and and blew myself up in that way and but I've committed injustices all the same 
right? Every one of my acts of disobedience, my sins against God, is an injustice. So I read this on one hand, I go, wait wait a second, whoa, 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 whoa. God's wrath will one day be poured out on all injustices. Well, what about What about me and my injustices? And here's where the gospel story says, yes, Jason, come here. Let's look at the cross. Because see what was happening at the cross? You know why it was so brutal and so ugly and so bloody? Because God was pouring out his wrath on his son at the cross for you and me. That's what was happening at the cross. That's why it was so painful and so so hard to, to bear what was happening to the son of God. Jesus was saying, Father, I'll take their wrath Pour it out on me right here on the cross. And the brutality of the cross bears witness to God's wrath being poured out on innocent blood so that you and I might be granted to put on fine linens, step into eternity as God's beloved. Now secondly, on a personal level, what about the injustices done unto us? Every person in this room has suffered injustice. Every person in this room has been betrayed. Some of you have been betrayed at a very deep level, maybe even recently within the last few weeks or months by somebody you loved deeply and and somebody that caught you off guard by their betrayal. Many of us in this room, just statistically speaking, have endured great suffering at the hands of others through physical abuse, Sexual abuse, emotional abuse, neglect, all injustices in the eyes of God. And we say to God, where are you? Where's your justice while this is happening to me? And God says back to us as his children, I'm enduring this with great patience, but there is coming a day when the fury of my anger will be unleashed on injustices in this world. And the enemies of God are finally brought to nothing. The book of Revelation describes the enemies of God and gives these metaphoric images to to kind of think about who they are and what they are. And here they are. There's the prostitute, which is also referred to as Babylon. Some would say this is a great city or a great nation that organizes itself against the works of God. Others would say, no, these are just people scattered around the earth in different nations in different times who all collectively are motivated by the same impulse to come against the works of God. There's the false prophet is described in the book of Revelation. The beast is described in Revelation. And of course, the mastermind behind them all, Satan himself, whose only motive is on earth is to seek to kill, steal, and destroy. And so we've yet to see these enemies be rounded up, brought to nothing, that the victory of Christ might be preeminent in the universe. And so when you read through the book of Revelation, we see these descriptions of what each of these enemies is about. The prostitute, Babylon, draws people away from God by using intimidating violence. We see the evidence of that almost every day around the globe. The beast draws people away from God by using deceptive heresy, twisting truths. The false prophet draws people away from God by using mesmerizing wealth and prosperity. And these are their tactics. And keep in mind, the mastermind behind them all is Satan himself. We see the evidences of Satan first in the garden 
chapter three, where Satan twists the words of God and he convinces Adam and Eve that it's better to be God than to just be created in his likeness. And they disobey God and sin, and sin and death enter into the story. We see it in the very next chapter between two brothers, Cain and Abel, where one murders the other out of jealousy and envy. We see it continue to play out in Genesis 5 and 6. And by the time we get to Noah, the Bible describes the hearts of men and every intention of, of, of every man's mind and heart is only evil all the time. So God floods the earth. And then with the remnant begins to rebuild. And it's just a few chapters later that mankind has gathered themselves together in this great city called the city of Babel to build a great name for themselves. Once again, Satan's fingerprints are all over that. We see his handiwork all throughout the Old Testament through fear and failure, trying to derail the people of God from walking in faithfulness and trust and worshiping the one true God. We see his handiwork explicitly in the Gospels when Jesus draws away to fast in the desert for 40 days and Satan meets him there face to face in an attempt to, 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 to lure him away from obedience to the Father. We see his fingerprints all over the brutality of the Roman soldiers at the cross as they spit on him, as they torture him and they beat him and ultimately put him to death. We see the evidences of Satan in the New Testament with the church and all these letters written from the apostles attempting to do what? Call the church back to faithfulness. Call the church back to believing the gospel. Calling the church back to God. Why? Because the enemy is there attempting to lure and derail the church from walking in faithfulness to God. And so now at this place in the gospel story at the end of Revelation 18 and the rest of chapter 19, we see that Babylon, the great prostitute, is bound up and thrown in the lake of the fire. We see the, the pro false prophet and the beast are, are bound up and thrown in the lake of fire. Chapter 20 of Revelation begins this way. Satan, the only enemy left now, is unleashed with an army to come against Jesus and his army and fire comes down from heaven, consumes the army and Satan is bound up and thrown into the lake of fire. Now what I love about this description is there's no struggle. There's no, they came at Jesus, Jesus came at them. After a little while, Jesus got the bet. Like the false prophet and the beast gather their army against Jesus and, and his crew that just rolled in on white horses and like we just get one sentence. They were bound up and thrown in the lake of fire. That's it. No struggle. And, and I'm, I'm exaggerating that on purpose because that's who's being described to us here. Satan comes toe-to-toe -to -toe with Jesus, armies in tow, ready to go to battle. And the, Revelation 20 says that fire comes down from heaven, consumes the army, and Satan is bound up and thrown in the lake of fire. I mean, that quick? Yes, that quick. And the only thing remaining now is for sin and death to be brought to an end. And as we continue reading in the book of Revelation, we see that not only was Satan bound up and thrown in the lake of fire, but so was death and so was Hades, all bound up and thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I've never been to a wedding like that, have you? Where the groom has to show up and make war against the enemies of his bride to rescue her and bring her to himself. But what we are seeing is this. It is the enduring with great patience the objects of wrath 
the enemies of God, prepared for destruction, and Jesus steps into the story preeminent. No longer suffering servant, now the roaring lion of Judah, and he says, enough! Enough injustice, enough pain and suffering, enough. And he throws it all to the lake of fire. preeminence of Jesus, now fully and finally realized. Now, it's so important for us to understand. Right now, if you look at this gospel story, 2018, where we are on this timeline, and if you just hit pause and take a step back and you look, who's in charge here? Who's in charge here on earth? It's going to appear that sin and death are in charge here. It's going to appear that Satan and his cronies are in charge here. We know by faith that Jesus is in charge, right? But when you read the news headlines, it doesn't look like Jesus is in charge. right? It looks like sin and death are ruling and reigning here on earth. And in this moment, the preeminence of Christ as the King of Kings steps forward. You remember what the saints are singing together? Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty what? Reign. He reigns. He wins. Now, we're tempted to think that this is the climax of the story, but we've talked about it. This isn't the climax of the story. The climax of the story is found in the Gospels when Jesus resurrects from the grave and in that moment displays his power, his victory over sin and death. What happens after that is just the resolution of the climax. Why is it important to talk like that? Because we are in between right now. We're not waiting and hoping that Jesus wins. We know he won. All we're patiently waiting for is what? The final revealing of the sons of God. When we gather together as the bride of Christ and Jesus himself shows up ready to make war and bring his enemies to nothing. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is a, is a chapter the Apostle Paul writes almost exclusively about the resurrection. And by the time you get to the end of the chapter, Paul is thinking about the future and how that resurrection of Jesus has an impact on what happens in the future. Listen to a few verses from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, When the perishable puts on imperishable. So right now, you and I are perishable. And the mortal puts on immortality. That's you and I are mortal, but we'll step into immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now what Paul is going to say is like, that's not just about something that's going to happen in the future. That has something to do with the in-between, where you are right now. Look at what he says now. Therefore, because all that's true, because Jesus has the final say in victory over sin and death, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
because we stand right now between the cross of Christ and this, this wedding feast where the saints gather as the bride and Jesus returns victoriously to put his enemies to death. We stand in the in-between right now. And Paul says, because we stand in the in-between, we do so victoriously. We do so, we're, we're immovable because of this truth. Right? We serve the Lord and our works are not in vain. Why? Because of what Jesus has done on the cross and what he has promised to do in the end. Steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, this is, we go back to the gospel story. We see in Genesis 3, sin and death enter the world. And in Revelation verse, chapter 20, we sin and death finally brought to nothing. So we're going to come back next week to look at the restoration of the heavens, the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 19 begins with the mighty sound of the nations gathering together in the great wedding hall where Jesus will claim the church as his bride. Today we saw the beautiful picture of our worship and our community being fully and finally restored. Jesus rides into the wedding hall at just the right time to rescue his bride from the villain. Jesus is no longer postured to endure the injustices of his enemies with great patience. Instead, he unleashes his righteous anger, bringing his enemies to an end. This is the moment in God's story where the preeminence of Christ is made known in the heavens and on the earth, and sin and death are brought to an end. Jesus secured our victory over sin and death at his resurrection. But this is the moment, the one we just read about today, is the moment that the universe will know it. This is the moment, without wavering, without doubt, that the universe will know that Jesus truly is what we just sang, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, Christ's follower, we believe that today, don't we? We walk in that truth today. That's where our, our immovability comes from. That's where our steadfastness comes from. That's where our compelling desire to participate in good works comes from. Knowing what has been accomplished and what has been guaranteed and promised, we stand in the in-between knowing that our God, the Lord Almighty, reigns. We're gonna land there today. I'm gonna come back next week and look at the end of chapter 20 and then Revelation 21 together at the new heavens and the new earth. I wanna just spend some time with you now, um, praying for you. I don't know, you know where you came into this room. Like, I don't know where your heart was at when you came in. Uh, maybe you came in ready to learn and worship and, and be with the church and to experience the presence of God. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you came in a little bit overwhelmed, stressed, burdened, struggling. And I want you to know God's ready to meet you right where you're at. That's you, and, and, and you'd like somebody to talk with you or to pray with you. That's what our prayer partners are for. Um, they're here at the front and the back when we sing this last song. If you're here today and you've never taken that step of faith to trust in Christ and him alone, I get this imagery in my mind like I'm white-knuckling my life and I'm, I'm afraid to let go of the things in this world, what I can accomplish, what I can, what I can make happen, and what Jesus says, let go of that stuff. And just take a step forward in faith and take my hand. Listen, if that's you, I'm going to pray in just a moment that you'll make that decision to trust in Christ and him alone. That what he's done at the cross is enough. 
It's enough to forgive you of all of your sins, to make you righteous and clean, to prepare you to be the bride of Christ in Revelation 19. What he's done is enough to to compel you to be steadfast and enduring in this life, knowing that the best is yet to come. I'm gonna pray that you'll make that decision today, that you will take a hold of the hand of Jesus and say, listen, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm trusting in you and you alone, and let him take it from there. And if that's you, once again, I would encourage you to, to slip out of your chair when we're singing and grab one of our prayer partners And let them pray with you and talk with you about what it means to trust in Christ. Let's pray together as our worship team comes forward. Um, Father, thank you for this very humbling and powerful reminder from your word. God, thank you that you deliver this truth to us right now at a place on the timeline of human history where oftentimes the world around us seems to be out of control. Oftentimes, the world around us seems to be more unjust than just. Thank you for for reminding us that right now you are enduring with great patience the injustices of this world. But God, thank you, oh God, thank you that you also remind us this morning that there will be a day when your enduring patience comes to an end and all injustices will be reckoned. Father, is humbling as it is to admit. When I look at the cross and I behold the agony and the pain and the suffering of Jesus, I recognize that that's my wrath. It's my punishment. I I deserve to be there, not him. God, thank you for sending your son at just the right moment to die for sinners like me, that I might have hope and assurance of spending eternity with you. God, would you move through this room? God, would your Holy Spirit stir in us, speak to us, work in us now as we prepare to respond. In Jesus' name.